Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so that you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Jack Nasher. Jack is a visiting faculty member at Stanford University and a professor at Munich Business School, where he was the youngest appointee to a full professorship in 2010 at age 31. Oxford educated and formerly with the German mission to the UN in New York City, the European Court of Justices, and leading Wall Street law firm Skadden, he is the founder of the Nasher Negotiation Institute and has been recognized in the media as one of the leading experts on negotiation and deception detection. Jack is the author of the book, Convinced, How to Prove Your Competence and Win People Over. He also performs as a mentalist at the world-renowned Magic Castle in Hollywood. So welcome to the podcast, Jack. I'm delighted to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. So I was so intrigued by your book, as we were discussing before we started. It's, I think this will be very eye-opening for people. And a couple of the things that you said really intrigued me. One is, competence doesn't speak for itself, and credibility is more important than competence alone. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the main point of the book is that perceived competence and actual competence have almost nothing to do with each other. Uh, you know, that explains a lot of careers. I'm sure, you know, you have some colleagues and you thought, wow, I mean, they're, they're just terrible. Uh, and yet they get promoted. Uh, and for some reason, uh, you know, the boss loves them or, or, you know, the clients love them. And you think, what, what, what the hell is going on? But the truth of the matter is that we're, it's very difficult for people to assess actual competence. They can't. You know, if I were to ask you, do you have a good dentist? Do you have a good family practitioner? How, you know, what are you going to base your judgment on? And that's the thing. It's, it's very hard uh, for people to do that if they're not experts themselves. And, uh, well, even for, you know, I started in law and, you know, I worked for Skadden, a law firm, and it would have taken me about 10 years to become a partner. Mm-hmm. So the other lawyers would have 10 years to decide whether I'm competent enough, you know, to be made a partner in right. the firm. And yet... You know, clients think they can just have lunch with a lawyer and judge his or her competence, but that's just impossible. So what do you think people are really assessing when they have those meetings or those initial impressions with people? They're assessing the perceived competence, and that's what this book is about. So I analyze, well, what do people look for or what do people use when they assess somebody's competence? And lo and behold, it has almost nothing to do with actual competence, which is you know, kind of sad when you think about it. Uh, but, but, you know, that, that's how it is. I mean, look at so many CEOs. We judge them. Based on what? You know, everybody thinks Steve Jobs was a great CEO. Was he? I don't know. I mean, he was a great speaker. Great. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's some, some uh, politicians that are, you know, great public speakers. But were they really good, you know, doing their job? I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm just, you know, all I'm saying is that it's very, very hard to actually judge somebody's actual competence, you know? So I looked at what people look for, and it's surprising factors that really make the difference. Body language, of course. 
uh, nonverbal, uh, but also verbal communication, how you speak, how loud, that actually makes a difference, the volume, the, uh, the pitch, um, how you stand, you know, crazy things like the angle. What, you know, am I tilted away from you? Am I facing you? That makes a difference in the perception. And, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I, I didn't come up with that. It's just countless research papers that I looked through. And, uh, you know, the researchers would spend months just looking at the angle. Where would, do, would you look more likable? How do you look more competent? Right. And I just collected everything leading to the perception of competence. And that's what this book is about. This is basically a manual on how to, you know, over 1,000 studies you know, were used for that to come up with, well, if you do this, people will think you're the best, you're the greatest. Well, and, and I'd love to get more into what you call the eight pillars of competence, but I, I wanted to first share with people, you tell a great story in the book about Joshua Bell, who's apparently yeah. is considered at the moment the, the world's greatest violinist and the, and the experiment that was done with him. Can you tell us that? I, I think that would be yeah. Intriguing. Yeah, it was a Washington Post experiment, and you know Joshua Bell went to uh, a metro station in D.C. a few years ago, and he just started to play the violin. And the idea was that true genius speaks for itself; that you don't need an MC, you don't need anything. But people, even people who are not educated in classical music, people who have you know who don't know who he is, they will just stand there in awe because he's so great, and you know real talent just speaks for itself. Like Steve Martin said be so good that they can't ignore you. That was the idea. And, you know, the idea was that, uh, you know, just genius speaks for itself, but, he, you know, he played and nothing happened. Not one single person was left standing when he, and, you know, people just, you know, walked uh, by him. It was, it was during rush hour, but still over 1,000 people just walked past him. And he played the same concert he would play a week later and they sold out, I think, Boston Symphony Hall, uh, for tickets selling over one hundred dollars, and um, and that's the crazy thing yeah. that you know they they thought actually they thought it was a, you know it was dangerous. They thought that people would go crazy. They wanted to inform the national guards uh, with tear <laughs> gas and, and and rubber bullets. Every but nothing happened at all, and that was the amazing thing. Nothing. That, that's an amazing story, and it really highlights what you you're talking about in the book, which is that there's so many factors that go into perceptions of competence that are not necessarily around actual competence. So not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, a couple of the things you mentioned are, are verbal and nonverbal communication. And can mm -hmm. you tell us more about both of those? What kinds of things should we be looking for or, or should we be looking to embody or to bring forth about ourselves? Um, yeah, I mean, th these two chapters are really, they, they read like a manual uh, for a DVD player or something, because really they're just lists of what to do and what to avoid. Uh, because again, you know, they, these were like research projects that took, that took months and I only took the results. So uh, basically, um, you know, the, the verbal communication, what is really important about verbal communication is to use something that is uh, called power talking. That was something the linguist Lakoff, a feminist linguist, Robin Lakoff, found decades ago um, when there was still a huge difference between men and women, how they would talk. And she found that women use something that is a low power talking, that they, instead of making, even when they make statements, they raise their voice at the end. So it sounds like a question mm. like that. Uh, they use unnecessary question tags. You know what I mean, don't you? 
like something like that. Uh, unnecessary clutter. They make uh, more hesitations and pauses when they speak. And um, while this, you know, this is over polite, low status talk, and this leads to a much lower perception of competence, and you will be much less convincing when you speak like this. And fortunately, um, you know, the difference between men and women um, got smaller and smaller. And yet, there are still many people, not you know, only women, lots of men who use this low power talking. And that's just something that should be avoided because really you ruin your own perception of competence by using these um, hesitations or trivializing phrases like, oh, you know, uh, pretty good, um, or, or even excessive politeness. Uh, will you please close the door? Uh, you know, something like that. Just so, so the, the message here is very clear. If you want to communicate and, and use power talking, make clear, concise statements that sound like statements. There's no need to put down your own status because if you do that, you will be perceived as lower in power and you just won't be taken seriously. And perceived status plays a major role in convincing people. Well, you also mentioned uh, asking great questions and, and having those as a way to guide the conversation. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, dominance or, um, you know, without just, just being intimidating or something, but being in control is a huge part of convincing people. And if you think about people who are very convincing, of, you know, of like, for instance, Steve Jobs, who I just mentioned, these are very dominant people who would really, who would not be um, controlled by others. And one way to do that is by asking questions, because when you ask questions, you guide the conversation. So again, that doesn't mean to be rude or intimidating, anything like that. But you, know, you have to keep in mind that you know being of high status is extremely, extremely important if you want to be convincing. And high status doesn't mean wearing a gold Rolex or something. It just means that you see, you know, you you seem in control, and everything that surrounds you. And you know, look around what you have, the tools of your trade. Uh, do you have a you know cheap big pen? Do you have you know you have to keep in mind, don't use that. If you hire a handyman and he shows up with, you know, terribly old tools and everything is kind of uh, old and should be, you know, it looks like trash, that really reflects very negatively on his or her status. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind that everything that surrounds you should be of a certain quality. And again, you don't have to be bragging, but just keep in mind that really status is extremely important. And everything you wear, because we cannot not communicate, everything you wear, everything you hold in your hand that you, know, that you use during your work really reflects your status. Keep that in mind. Now, you know, it, it depends where you work. If you work for a startup, status symbols are very different. It's not wearing a nice tie or a Ferragamo tie or something like that. It's uh, probably you know, specific sneakers or specific uh, brands. I, I don't know what it is, depending yeah. where you work, but just keep in mind that everything that surrounds you communicates something about you. You cannot not communicate, even if you don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, and, you know, 95% of what people think about you can be influenced by yourself. So you should seize that opportunity. Well, that's uh, certainly encouraging that you can, you can uh, alter the perception that people have of you. And one of the things that, that really... Uh, for one of the first things I thought about when I was reading your book was that um, the way you're perceived as competent seems to describe, uh, at least this is what I'm familiar with, the, the more American vision of a leader. And 
most studies that you cite are U.S. based, and yet you work in Europe, so you're certainly aware of cultural differences. Would you say mm-hmm. that at least most of what you describe in the book is universal, or is it culturally related? Well, um, you know, the idea of social psychology, and that's basically the you know that that's the foundation of my work, is that. There are similarities in people. That's just a modus operandi of the human being. Now, of course, there are cultural differences. Um, but the, the thing is, and that's the dilemma of all psychological research, that the USA is so dominant uh, because they just have, you know, great research. There's no, you know, it used to be uh, German uh, dominated before World War II. You, you had to actually speak, Ger- be able to speak German in order to be a psychologist because all the major studies were in German. Mm-hmm. Now, this has dramatically changed. So uh, now really the U.S. is so dominant um, and, uh, you know, there's always the question, well, is it still representative? Uh, you know, th- that's a dilemma. But, you know, there's some human uh, mechanisms. And I found because, I, you know, I work in, in, in Europe, I work in Asia and the U.S., that uh, they're just, the difference is just how you apply a certain principle to fit in the cultural context. And, and I write about that in the book. Now, for instance, you know, one very important aspect is confidence, perceived competence. Now, in the U.S., you can get away with much more confidence, uh, perceive, you know, just you know, being really dominant in, in your behavior, mm-hmm. uh, which you couldn't get away with if you were in Japan, for instance, mm-hmm. or if you even were in Germany, where you have to be a little more uh, you know, lower key. But these are you know, things of tact and finesse that no book can really teach you. That is something you will know once you are in, in that other culture. But the mechanisms, the modus operandi, status, confidence, um, uh, popularity, attractiveness, uh, you know, uh, your stance, the way you sit, these are all generally uh, applicable. But always have to fit the situation, whether it's culturally or also, you know, just in the context. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things you talk about are managing people's expectations. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people operate by the idea that that under-promising and over-delivering is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. And you suggest uh, an alternative based on the research in your book. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's horrible to do that, to under-promise, over-deliver. You should never, I mean, you shouldn't do that. Well, you know, it sounds nice. Uh, and, you know, my British clients, they love, I mean, I studied in the UK and that was really the British attitude, you know. So, no, But imagine, uh, let's say, uh, you know, my car, I, I used to have a British car and every time I went to, uh, to get it fixed to the shop, no matter who it was, they would say, oh, it was a Rover, old Rover. They would say, oh, you know, whew, that's tough. I don't know if it's going to work out. And, you know, every time I hoped and hoped, next day the car was fine. Every time, you know, somehow worked out. So that was, you know, very clearly under promise over deliver. Now, but was I happy about this? No. What I thought is, ah, you know, he was just lucky this time, but I'm not going to go there again. You know, probably next time he's not lucky. So you have to keep in mind that people believe what they're being told. So if he tells me I'm not sure, I think he's not sure. If he tells me, well, I don't know if I can do it, I doubt his expertise immediately. And if so, you know, so I'm scared. And, you know, if people make a choice for you, um, your clients choose you, they don't want you to contribute to their fears. They want you to be part of the solution, not add to their problem because they came uh, to you to fix their problem. So, you know, we think that being modest is somehow nice. It's, um, you know, we show our great character, but it's not. It's it's terrible because what you actually tell them is that they came to the wrong guy or to the Mm -hmm. wrong, wrong woman because, you know, why, well, why do you do it then? you should choose another job. If you're so insecure about the results of your work, 
probably, you know, and that's what people think. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what people think. So actually modesty in the workplace can lead to aversion against the modest person. And be honest, it's not very ethical to do that because the only reason you do it is because you want to be prepared for failure. You want to prepare others for your own failure. You want to tell them, look, I told you, you know, I wasn't sure. So it's not, it's not honorable and it's not good for your perceived competence at all. Instead, you should evoke high expectations. That doesn't mean you should fake it if you know you're going to fail. I don't mean that. I mean in the regular case, you know, if you do your job quite well, usually you will succeed, I hope. If, you know, usually you fail, then you should change your job. But if you usually succeed, then you should evoke higher expectations. Why? Because then you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. People will not forget that you took care of them. Even in the case that you fail, you will still be perceived as being more competent and more likable. And you can get away with that a few times even. I mean, if you fail every time, of course not. But I'm talking again about the regular uh, you know, situation where mostly you, you will succeed, sometimes you will fail, sometimes you will perform very, very well. So raising high expectations in your outcome is always the better choice. Hmm. Well, that is so interesting because it kind of... Uh flies in the face of some management literature around being humble and um, leaders taking a, a more humble stance. And um, it's just so interesting that the research. Is I know. I mean, so different. It, it is. And I think also that's, that's, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, is Trump right now, because, you know, a lot of people like him and a lot of people don't like him. It's, I, think I would say it's about 50, 50, depending where you, I was just in New York. It was not 50, 50 there, but um the thing is that, you know, he's such a dominant figure right now. I think this leads to people be, you know, preferring more humble uh, others uh, and say, you know, people want to be less, you know, every like CEO swagger is really unpopular. I was just involved in a Wall Street Journal um, uh, article on, on the lost swagger of CEOs. And that's true because people right now are kind of scared to be like that, uh, you know, especially if they don't like Trump, um, that everything is like really toned down now. That is true. And yet, if somebody comes to you with a problem, it's still better to be of high confidence. That doesn't mean you have to just say, I'm great, I'm fantastic. It's a question Which, of degree, you know, really, it sounds like. It, it, you know, it, it can be done with, uh, you know, in a much more subtle way by just, you know, confidently telling them, well, thank you very much. I will take care of your problem. You came to the right guy. Mm -hmm. That's it. You, know, you don't have to say, I'm great, I'm fantastic. Even though... I was surprised when I watched the presidential elections that, you know, Trump did nothing but raise high expectations in his uh, competence. He just said, I'm great. I'm fantastic. I'm the best. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, he's really using that to the max. But I think, you know, that's just, that can't work because there was no track rate, nothing. And yet it worked. I was really surprised. And that's a good illustration of how effective this actually is. Yeah. So interesting. Well, is there an element of, likability in our perceived competence because um you know we tend to go to some effort to at least most people do to make sure that we're liked and what's the relationship there that you found in the research well first of all i mean it's something different you know competence and likability are two different uh, traits or characteristics you know i mean you have to understand that you know you watch movies and you see a great lawyer in the movie even though he's a scumbag but you would still go to him probably if you really had an important issue because he's just the best. So competence, likability are two different 
uh, aspects. However, they're somehow related by something we know as the halo effect. The halo effect means that um, you know one aspect shines on the other like a halo. So if I'm very popular, if I'm very beautiful, this will shine on any other aspect of myself. So I will look more competent when I'm more likable. So this is actually quite helpful. And the, you know, and the, so there, there are many things uh, where, where you can where you can make a positive impression. Uh, but likability and uh, so popularity, likability and attractiveness are the most important ones. Mm-hmm. They, they have an extreme influence on how we are perceived. So if you are more likable and more attractive, you will be perceived as more competent. And you know, there's some ways, and you can say, well, you know, tough luck. I'm not attractive, or I'm attractive anyway. Well. There's some research conducted, a German uh, guy, Martin Gründel, worked on this for years, and he has an incredible, uh, it's unbelievable, the results of his uh, research, which are unpublished, crazily. I, I know him, that's why I know his research. Wow. And, and uh, he really looked at, scrutinized, at what makes us attractive, the perception of attractiveness. And it's really amazing that there are factors that we wouldn't expect, like the nose, for instance, isn't very important for the perception of our attractiveness. Um, that, uh, the, for, you know, there, there are very other factors that are sometimes even easily influenced. So if this information would really, you know, people knew that plastic surgeon, uh, surgeons would lose billions of dollars every year because they waste money on things that aren't that important. You know, he conducted research for years, just, you know, with pictures, people judging this face, that face. And, um, and he, he came to the conclusion that, well, you know, that actually all the points he lists I have in the book, but I'll just give you an example of, uh, for instance, uh, good skin, uh, pure skin is more important than the nose. Uh, for instance, dark eyelashes, <clears throat> excuse me, dark eyelashes are very important and, you know, very easy to, uh, to change. So there are some things that you can change almost immediately and they will make such a difference on your perceived attractiveness. And attractiveness is such an important trait. Even parents love their children more when they're more attractive. Same-sex friendships, heterosexual friendships, are highly influenced by attractiveness of the friend. It's incredible. It's almost frightening how important our attractiveness is. Yeah, it's so interesting. I guess there's an evolutionary basis for that, but um, yeah. it's interesting how well, it plays yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things you talk about as, as one of the eight pillars of uh, perceived competence is around presenting good news versus bad news. Yes. So if, if you're in a situation where mm-hmm. you're presenting good news or you're, or you're in a, unfortunately having to deliver a challenging scenario, what are mm-hmm. some of the things that you can look out for in those situations? Yeah, challenging scenario. That's a very nice word for like terrible news. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you have to keep in mind, again, the halo effect affects your perception because if you have good news, the good news shine on you like a halo. If you have bad news, the bad news will shine on you like a negative halo. So the, you know, the very first thing you have to know uh, is that you have to milk good news to use them to the max. So always deliver them in person. Be there, stand up at a meeting when you deliver good news. Talk as long as possible. Put the spotlight on you so all eyes are on you. And you will be forever associated with these good news. Don't waste them by writing an email, by writing a a text message or anything like that. 
you can thank your team, you can thank you know, your grandma, whoever you want to thank, but it's you who stands up there. It's like a present with all the friends chip in. The one who presents the present uh, is always the one who's associated with that present. Okay, so make this association as strong as possible. If you have bad news, on the other hand, make sure to be as little associated as, uh, you know, just don't stand up, just stay seated. You can take the blame, whatever, but, you know, don't be visible if possible um, and immediately switch to good news. What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, mention the bad news, tell them that, you know, this and this happened, I take full responsibility and these are our key learnings from this. And then you come A, B, C, D. So at the end, actual, you know, actually good news, because what you learn from it, uh, your few, you know, positive, bright future will be remembered and not the bad news. So keep that in mind. Again, when you have good news, extend them, be as much associated as possible. Bad news, quickly, you know, just go over them and then switch to the key learnings and what you will change. Mm. Well, you, you talk about in the book uh, some scenarios for CEOs where they presented, they've had to do a product recall or presented mm-hmm. some kind of bad scenario to the mm-hmm. public and, yeah. and you analyzed how that works. And I, on reflecting back on it, the people who have managed a company through a difficult situation like that have handled it in exactly that way. Yeah. That's one of the points. Interestingly, you mentioned that because that's one of the points I read about this in the literature. And then I, you know, I thought, well, okay, so it's like, you know, very theoretical. How is that going to work? And then I just, you know, strangely, there was this incident where an Air France jet crashed somewhere in Brazil. And I saw the CEO and uh, the room was really lit. Uh, So you could, you know, you saw him and the journalists were standing right next to him. So you could barely see him. There was no logo of the company, nothing. And that that was interesting because I saw the press conference before when he uh, would give the the annual uh, figures, which were very good. It looked totally different. He was elevated. There was light just on his face, big Air France logo. And I thought, wow, you know, what a difference. What a difference. So, and then I looked at some of the, you know, I, I looked at on YouTube on, you know, bad news uh, conferences. And, and, you know, when they had, or Steve Jobs had to recall the iPhone back then, the room was lit. So he wasn't, you know, like a saint in, in some spotlight, but uh, it, it was very different. The whole setup of the room. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that they're CEOs. Uh, they, they, they know exactly. I mean, not everyone, but a lot of them know exactly what they're doing. So you see that uh, illustrated in, in, in real life again and again. Mm. So interesting. I, another thing that you talk about in the book that I, I've noticed many times, especially on social media, is basking in reflected glory. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. I was recently at a, a meeting where there were some, there were awards uh, given and a person attending uh, had a Facebook post after that congratulating the winners. And then, oh, by the way, mentioning that three of them were her clients. And in, mm. it was interesting because it, there was, there's a fine line between basking in reflected glory and name dropping. And mm-hmm. um, that one felt like it crossed the line a little bit, but mm-hmm. what are your perspectives on that? Yeah, I mean, um, now, you know, it's it's an indirect way. Basking in reflected glory is a term coined by Gialdini, my colleague Robert Gialdini, who mm-hmm. also wrote a nice testimony for my book. Um, and, uh, you know, here, here I did it, uh, you know, uh, name dropping. 
but but uh, it's just his term. So I'm kind of you know I'm academic. I always have to give credit when credit is due. And um, yeah, and and you know the idea here is that I can praise not myself, but I praise somebody who's associated with me. Now you know the ideal way is of course that I don't have to mention it because people know. Like for instance, okay, let's say I. Uh, you know, I, I have a degree from Oxford University and I tell you, you know, Oxford isn't all that. It's all about the reputation, really. It's just, you know, like any other school. So if I do that, probably my likability will go up. And you think, wow, what a humble guy, honest guy. On the other hand, of course, I kind of ruin the appearance of my competence myself. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I said, you know, Oxford, I, you know, the great thing is that all my peers there, you know, they're now, you know, one is a professor at uh, Harvard, the other one uh, at Oxford, one is a partner at, at the world's largest law firm. So when, when you know, and I, I can be humble about it. I can say, you know, that was really humbling to, to study with, with all these people. Now, even though I'm, I'm rather modest, by praising whatever it is I am associated with, my status goes up, my perceived confidence goes up. So for instance, if I say, oh, you know, I worked at, I don't know, Ford before I didn't, but I'm just, you know, as an example, and I praise Ford and I say, you know, it was really challenging. Uh, the management was, was really great and, um, you know, and, and, and very demanding and whatever. So I talk about the company now, but of course this reflects on me indirectly. Right. And if I said, you know, Ford it was a chaos, it was a mess, you know, we didn't get anything done. It was horrible. And I worked, yeah, I worked there for five years. So, you know, what's going to happen? I look bad. So, you know, it's a rather subtle way, and I say rather subtle because, of course, name dropping can be not subtle. And yet, even though if you think, well, that's name dropping, you will still think and you still remember that, you know, three of them were her clients. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point. So, like Francis Bacon uh, said, praise yourself daringly, something always sticks. So <laughs> even if you think, wow, you know, what a show off, uh, you know, somehow it just sticks with us. So it's up to you to do it in a charming and, you know, less obvious way if you can but even if it's not you know if it's very obvious it's still better than not doing it yeah so interesting yeah and it's and it's effective so I, yeah it is yeah, yeah. well but it's, it's, you know it's your personality how direct you want to do it. and i understand mm-hmm. if you don't want to be show off and a bragger you know it's absolutely fine but research is, suggests that it's it's still good for you if you do that yeah it's interesting well um one of the things that that uh, I know there's been so much talk about in recent years is authenticity and bringing your full self into your work and, and really bringing yourself forward. And yeah. I wonder, you know, how do you reconcile that with all of these strategies about how mm-hmm. you should behave and yeah. authenticity? How do they, how does that balance out? Very good point. And I think authenticity is key. I think if you, you know, fake something, people will notice. So, all these things, I mean, how you sit, how you stand, uh, if you, know, you, you talk at a higher volume, they, they don't change your personality. They don't, don't change who you are, Uzula. Uh, you, know, you still are who you are. But it doesn't hurt to use this and that to a certain degree. Now, there are some things that probably don't fit your personality and you don't use them. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff in my book I don't use myself because they just don't fit who I am, um, you know, my, just my personality. And that's absolutely fine. So instead of faking that uh, and just, you know, really sticking to everything, you know, sometimes I just don't do it. And, and, and that's absolutely fine. But uh, it, it doesn't. And that's really important that for, for none of this do you have to change your character. To be a little more confident about your accomplishments, 
you know, I, I hope you don't have to change your character for that because um, this is not really about personality. This is just about, you know, how you, you know, present yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by, by, but of course it depends how far you go and that is your personality. Mm-hmm. If you do it in a subtle way or in a very obvious way saying I'm the best, I'm the greatest, which you don't, definitely don't have to do. Well, that's a great answer. I, I'm, I really like the way you uh, have put that together and the way you reconcile the two and, and how you can fit that in. So, and without being inauthentic and still at the same time presenting yourself in a way that's going to be effective and allow you to have the impact yeah. that you want to have. I mean, so, yeah. Let, let me add something to that. Yeah. Because, you know, people say exactly what you say, but then I say, well, you know, you wear high heels probably sometimes you wear lipstick, you comb your hair. Well, you know, your hair doesn't really look like that. Your lips don't look like that. You're shorter than, you know, wearing when wearing high heels. So that's all kind of faking it, you know, and yet we do it all the time. Why? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's a way we want to present ourselves uh, up to a certain limit, of course. Um, so, um, and I think that's perfectly fine. There's nothing, we have one life and, you know, why, why not, not live, live it to the fullest and, you know, really, you know, live it to our, our potential. Yeah. Well, I, something too, that I wonder about is if people have already formed an impression of you and formed an impression of your competence, can that be changed? It's very hard. Because really the primacy effect, the first impression is extremely strong, unfortunately, because it sometimes only takes seconds uh, to form that impression. It can be very unfair. <clears throat> so if you, know, if you have, an, you know, if, if you already made a negative impression, it's even more important to use the techniques because it, it won't go away by itself. So you really have to work on it even harder. Yeah. Well, what... I wondered, just to explore a little bit your experience, how have these things changed the way that you approach people? Have you, I mean, you mentioned that you've incorporated some of these things. Are, 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 there, are they things that you intuitively already did or were some of them new that you added? Well, one of the key learnings for, for me, and you know, it really totally changed the way I, you know, when I have an important meeting or if I have a pitch and a prospective client, I don't try to be the best choice anymore, but I eliminate anything that could make me a bad choice because I know that we have a loss aversion. I know that people are convinced by people who take away their fears. So instead of saying, um, you know, I'm just great, that's what I meant. It's in a more subtle way uh, how you use these techniques. I take away their fears. So I inform myself before I meet them or during the meeting, what are their greatest fears? What speaks against me? Why would they not hire me? And once I tackle exactly that, these fears, I noticed that it makes like the biggest difference you can imagine because people don't choose what they like best. People choose what they fear least. And whoever takes away these fears is the one who will convince them. Well, I am intrigued by something in your, in the work that you're doing. <laughs> I, I always end these interviews with a rapid round of three questions around impact. But before we get to that, I'm so intrigued by the fact that you work as a mentalist in Hollywood. So that seems so out of you know, out of the the, the path of, of what you're you're talking about in the book in some ways. But tell us a little bit about that. It's, I'm so curious. Well, you know, my business is how to 
read and influence people because I'm a negotiation advisor. I'm an academic working on negotiations. So that is reading and influencing people. And that's what I also do on stage because it can be fun. Really influencing people with suggestions, even with hypnosis techniques, with um, you know manipulating their choice on stage, um, making them choose whatever it is I want them to choose. So you know mixing this with kind of magic and and you know psychology blended together, that's really fun, and that that's what mentalism is. So I do that um, you know for fun. That's that's my hobby because I'm really intrigued by the human mind and how the modus operandi of our thinking. And um, yeah, I, I even do it in my spare time. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, Jack, I, I always end these interviews, as I said, with a rapid round of three questions around impact, which is the, the topic for the podcast. Are you, are you game to do those? Sure. Great. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact, about making a contribution in the world? Well, uh, the biggest thing I learned is to first really... Um, you know, uh, you have to know who you are and you have to uh, be happy in what you do. So I noticed that before you really think about others, you really have to put your house in order. Before you want to improve the world, you really have to take, a, take care of yourself. That to me is the most important thing because I often see my students, very young people who want to change the world. And, you know, they, they don't even, you know, they, they can't even uh, take care of their own one bedroom studio. And that's, you know, and I have to say that, uh, even though I, I think it's great when people want to make this world a better place, well, you know, first take care of your own problems and, you know, b before you really, you know, think in such great dimensions. Such great advice. Well, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I think, you know, my job is helping people. Um, and uh, commercial, of course, I take money for it. To, you know, yes, as, as a professor, I get paid for that. That's, you know, how I do my living. And yet... You know, that is my job, helping people um, in negotiations, um, students, of course. You know, I have lots of students who constantly ask for advice. And it's, it's a great feeling to, uh, you know, leave, you know, to, to really change somebody's life in some way. And usually I think it's in a good way because I give them advice on, uh, you know, job interviews, on their career paths. And, you know, I get a lot of emails and letters, thank you letters. And that's really, really uh, very rewarding. Mm, that's great. And the last question is, what's one insider piece of advice you'd share with another leader or business owner about how can I possibly affect my own environment? How can I have impact? I think if you do a good job in whatever it is you do, and even if you just have a business that is very good, if you have a restaurant and you're a great chef, I think you make a great impact. Because people will go to you and, you know, I just, you know, I have a great restaurant here around the corner, which I love. And I think even though, and again, if it's, you know, a commercial endeavor, there's nothing wrong with that. Because, uh, or, you know, if I go to a great bakery, even if it's greed that drives the baker, that's perfectly fine. Because it's great bread and just he wants to sell it. So whatever it is, if you do something well and you're successful in it, you obviously make a great impact because people choose to go to you. That's great. Well, yeah, I mean, those skills and that, that competence, that uh, actual competence is, is so valuable. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad that you've been able to join us today, Jack, and thank you for sharing what you have. I, I think that the, the book, um, which is called Convinced, How to Prove Your Competence and Win People Over, is such a practical tool that people can use to pull out those things that feel right for them and to really 
increase the perception of their own competence. So thank yeah. you for, for joining. Thank you, Ursula, for your interest. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you, or um, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Well, uh, either my Facebook page or just jacknasher.com. Uh, and, you know, just write me an email and I'll be, you know, be happy to help in negotiation or LinkedIn, of course, um, be happy to help when you, you know, the going gets rough in negotiations to help you as a negotiation advisor, because that is my main profession. Great. And your book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and mm-hmm. uh, those major outlets. So, well, Jack, thank you again. I so appreciate the work you're doing in the world and um, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much, Ursula. Thanks a lot. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.